let us uh, rise up and, and read from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Please see it. This year, we have decided to do a sermon series on systematic theology. It's not the kind of thing that churches usually do, but we felt it was important that as a community, we get back to the core doctrines of our faith. So what is systematic theology? It is, simply put, systematic theology seeks to answer a particular type of question. What does the Bible, in its entirety, so that means the Old Testament and the New Testament, have to say about a particular topic, like salvation or marriage, for example? Now, if you think like that, the list of topics can be endless, but Traditionally, systematic theology focuses on a few core doctrines of the Christian faith, like God and Jesus Christ, the human being, sin, salvation, the church, and so on. So why is it important for us to to spend our time focusing on theology? Well, firstly, the theology defines our beliefs, and it grounds our beliefs in Scripture. It enables us to be sure in our faith and prevents us from, being, from becoming muddled in our thinking or falling prey to false teachers or false doctrine. But the more important reason is the true purpose of theology is edification, building up of the church. It is not intended to build up our head knowledge. It's not merely a statement of facts. See, scripture is not an encyclopedia or a dictionary that we can consult as a fact book. Scripture changes lives through the application of God's truth. A Christian, therefore, needs to yearn to know what the Scripture says about anything because he or she believes that God's truth is what will sustain them in this life and secure them in eternity. So today I want to begin by looking at perhaps the most important topic in theology, and that's the topic upon which every other topic is dependent upon. Knowing God. Can God be known? How do we know him? Why is it important to know him? Those are some of the questions we'll seek to answer briefly um, in our time today. Now, some of us might be familiar with the, the origins of what we call the Ivy League schools in the United States. So that's Harvard and Yale and Princeton and so on. In the original donation to Harvard University, which was the reason why Harvard University was founded, John Harvard said, this is the purpose of the university. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all knowledge and learning, and see that the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to see Christ 
as Lord and Master. So Howard's rules and precepts, which were adopted in 1646, they were changed, uh, I believe, in the 50s. They, they read, these are the, the rules of Harvard University. Everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing the Lord giveth wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer seek wisdom of him. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that they be ready to give an account of their proficiency in it, both in theory and in practice. So it's no surprise that in the 17th century, 52% of Harvard graduates became pastors and ministers. Now, we know that today's situation in Harvard and any university is a, far, is a far cry from those initial days, days in which the pursuit of the knowledge of God could be considered the highest ideal of all learning and education. But that's what we want to do. So what is theology? Now, literally, theology means the science of knowing God or the knowledge of God. We know theos means God, and logos means knowledge or logic or word. And our passage today, what we just read in Jeremiah, attests to the fact that knowing and understanding God, that is, being a theologian, is the highest calling any man or woman can aspire to. That is what we can boast in, if we can boast in anything. Now, does that mean we all need to quit our day jobs and go enroll in seminary? You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate today that that word theology and theologian seems to exclusively convey the idea of someone who studies the Bible in like a university setting or perhaps maybe a pastor or a Bible teacher. But the truth is, whether we realize it or not, we are all theologians because we all have an idea of God and we all express our ideas about God. Charles Ryrie defined theology as thinking about God, and expressing those thoughts in some way. So we all fall in that category. In a sense, even atheists and agnostics are theologians. They also think about God. They also formulate ideas about God, although they may come to different conclusions from ours. So whether we like it or not, we are all theologians. Then, the only question I need to ask of myself especially as a Christian, is whether I'm a good theologian or a bad one. In my understanding of God, am I honest and truthful? Am I conveying the right ideas or am I misguided? How would I know and evaluate myself in that regard? So as I um, stated earlier, the core question is, can God be known? Now, this is a church, so I'm not spoiling the ending for everyone when I say that the answer is a resounding yes. You know, that, the fact that God can be known is evident in the testimony of Scripture. It's validated in history, especially the history of the Son of God and of the people of God. And it's reconfirmed daily in the lives of you, me, and every other child of God. See, God is not hiding. He can be found and he can be known. So the question is not just whether God can be known, 
but how do we know God? And today my aim is to show that the knowledge of God covers three aspects or three domains or three realms. Now if you were to go to like a university, they would call this the intellectual realm, which is the, the, the mind, the volitional realm, which is the realm of the will and the heart, and the moral realm, which is the, the realm of our actions. What the theologians call it might not make much sense to us. So I'm going to simplify these terms and call them the head, the heart, and the hands. Okay? I'm not a big fan, usually, of things like that, but I think it makes sense here. The knowledge of God covers the head, the heart, and the hands. So knowing God involves all three of these aspects. We cannot truly know God unless our knowledge of him has an impact or a consequence in each of these aspects. So firstly, knowing God in our heads. So how can we know God with our heads or with our minds? Well, the honest answer is the Bible says we cannot. The Bible says we cannot know God. If a person set out to know God, the Bible says it's impossible unless God takes the initiative to reveal himself. See, it is impossible for the human mind to comprehend, let alone approach the realm in which God exists without divine assistance. So God has chosen to reveal himself to us. So we can say theology is essentially the study of God's self-revelation. We cannot know anything about God that he himself does not want us to know. And once we know God with our minds and understand the majesty and the awesomeness of God, there can be no appropriate response other than glorifying and worshipping him. Perhaps the earliest theologian that we can still read today is the Apostle Paul. See, Paul, especially in the episode of the Romans, takes Old Testament scriptures and he conveys systematically an idea to draw our attention to the nature of God, the fallen nature of man, and therefore our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul has to say about knowing God. I'm reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. Romans chapter 1. Verses 19 to 23. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him because they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that God can be known through nature and creation. Paul even goes on to say that nature and creation portray God, the existence of God, in such stark terms that no human being has an excuse to claim that he or she cannot know God. 
That is, he or she cannot know of God or know about God. But then Paul goes on to say that this kind of knowledge is ineffective. Why is that? Because of the fallen state of man, the knowledge of God that is acquired from nature is twisted and perverted to the extent that men and women would gladly give up the privilege of knowing God in order to worship the things of this world. They have become fools. They claim that the very idea of a God who is knowable is foolishness. But Paul goes on to say that God can still be known effectively through another medium. And that channel is the channel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we read later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. We all know this verse. It says, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Therefore, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, what he's saying here is that even if men and women try to shut out the idea of God from their minds, God cannot be shut out. He is inescapable. He is more than capable of revealing himself despite the closed wickedness of the human mind. To do so, what did God do? He entered our world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, we did not seek God, but God sought us, even when we were mired in our selfish and wicked foolishness. He did not come to condemn us for the futility of our minds, but in an act of tremendous grace, Jesus Christ has opened our minds to truly know God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Now you'll notice one of the um, key aspects of theology, especially systematic theology, is a lot of scriptural references because that is its nature. It's trying to convey a, a cohesive idea from the scripture. So we read in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, this is what Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father and... Listen to this. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. See, that's the privilege of being a Christian who has been transformed by the Gospel. Everyone knows God in some sense. But only the Christian truly knows God. Only the Christian has the means to learn and understand God through the scriptures and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So we do the Christian faith a great disservice when we call it a spiritual religion. I mean, it is a spiritual religion. But it is an intellectual faith. What does that mean? It means... The Christian faith has logic, it has science, it has arguments, it makes propositions that can be tested and validated. That intellectual faith is grounded in God's own truthful revelation of himself. Christianity is the most essential truth. It's the most basic of facts. And you look around the world today and you see what's happening with religious extremism and all of that. And then you ask, 
why is the Christian faith not afraid of the hard questions? Why is the Christian faith not afraid of the so-called blasphemers? Because it is not protected by a hedge of violence and ignorance. Rather, the Christian faith grows stronger in the midst of intellectual opposition because its foundation is not in the sands of human wisdom, but in the unchanging truth of God himself. And when the Christian seeks no more about God, he or she will quickly realize three things. Right? The first thing is that we can never fully understand God. You know, Psalms 145 and verse 3 says that great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. God is so great, so awesome, so profound that we'll never be able to know everything about him. In fact, the Bible even says that we will never be even able to know fully any single attribute of God. So if you devoted your whole life to just learning about the holiness of God, you still would not be able to know fully the holiness of God. If we pursue the knowledge of God, we cannot but like Paul exclaim, you know, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, how unknowable his ways. The, the, um, the, the British theologian Richard Baxter once said, if you could fathom or measure God and know his greatness comprehensively, then he would not be God. A creature cannot comprehend or understand anything but another creature. You may know God, but you will not understand him. Just like your foot can take a step on the earth, but does not cover all the earth. The sea is not the sea if you can hold it in a spoon. So we can never fully understand God. But whatever we know of God, whatever we can know of God, is true. Whatever we know of God is true. Why is that important? You see, a lot of philosophies, especially agnostics, will throw their hands up and say, that if God cannot be fully understood, then what's the point of seeking to understand him at all? And that is so arrogant, if you think about it, especially in this day and age, right? Like, when people get married, like, husbands seek to learn more about their wives, knowing full well that they might never be able to understand them comprehensively. I think the reverse is not true. I think the wives understand the men in like the first two years. Um, you know, parents seek to know their children. But when it comes to God, it's all or nothing. But the very fact that he is God should clue us into the reality that we will never know everything about him. But he has revealed himself truthfully in nature and especially in scripture. So we can truthfully know that God is love, that God is light that God is righteous, that his mercies endure forever. See, even the Sunday school child who has only learned that God is love without having an understanding of his sovereignty or his holiness knows truthfully that God indeed is love because God is truthful in everything he reveals about himself. So we cannot understand God fully, but we can understand him truthfully. And the last thing is, there's so much to know about God that we cannot exhaust our pursuit of his knowledge. 
in this life and even in the next. You see, it's not because we are sinners that we can never fully understand God. It's because God is so infinitely great. Even when we have been transformed in the new age, we will still never be able to fully understand God. So a true Christian will have unending joy in learning more about God every day, personally, and in fellowship with the saints, going over the scriptures, hoping to unravel another tiny thread in the vast canopy of God's revelation to us. See, God has taken the initiative to make himself known to you and me. The world calls that knowledge foolishness, but we have to treasure it as the greatest wisdom in the universe. David said that your thoughts of God is precious to me. In Psalm 139, let us never tire of seeking to know more of him. So that's knowing God with our minds. Now we come to knowing God in our hearts. Now we all know that the Christian's knowledge of God is more than just intellectual or factual knowledge. So it's easy to know of a person like I know of Stephen Harper. You see, we might have a certain level of comprehensiveness in our factual knowledge, but that is different from knowing a person personally. Personal knowledge engages us in a relationship with the other person. Relationships transcend the mind to reside in our heart. Relationships mean mutual intimacy and the freedom to communicate frankly. Relationships bring benefits and obligations that are not available to someone whose knowledge of that person has not traveled from the mind to the heart. Now let us return back to our first passage from Jeremiah. There God says true boasting can only be found in the fact that a person knows him. You see that? It's not knowing of him, but knowing him. That is a call to relationship. In fact, Jeremiah and and Hosea in the Old Testament talk about a new covenant that would bring about a bold transformation in how people would know God. They would no longer merely know of God, but they would know him personally and intimately. Jesus Christ coming into the world was was the um, inauguration of that new covenant. See, once again, God has revealed himself, this time in the person of the Son. But this revelation is riskier in a sense that the Creator is opening himself up to intimacy with the creature. You know, as Christians, we can sometimes become immune to the, to the audacity that it takes to claim that a human being can enter into a relationship with the Almighty God. And some of us know this. You know what it will take to, to remind us of that fact once again? Go find a very religious Muslim mention that little tidbit or the little factor. Oh yeah, we can know God in our heart. And, you, and in his response, you will realize the impact of the new covenant. See, we can, we can look to the New Testament. We can look to Hebrews, whose author's mind and his worldview was transformed by this idea that we can know God, that in the last days, God has spoken through his son once and for all. The writer of 
Hebrews takes the promise of Jeremiah and he exclaims that it has been realized through the work of Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 to 13, the, the, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It's another very famous passage. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10 to 13. This is what it says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And notice, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. See, the old way of knowing God is obsolete. It's gone. A new age in which it is possible to know God truly in the heart and to engage in a relationship with Him is here. But you know what the beauty of it is? That it is more than us, than just me and you knowing Him. He knows us too. Jesus says in, um, in John's Gospel that the Good Shepherd knows His sheep. Paul says in Second Timothy that God's firm foundation stands with the seal stating that the Lord knows who are His. That is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. And because, and because He knows us, we know Him and we have eternal life. John chapter 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We have eternal life. We have the confidence that God loves us, that he listens to our prayers, that he's able to help us in our time of need, and more. And when you enter into a relationship with God, when your knowledge of God moves from the head to the heart, your heart is transformed. If your mind is now tuned to the glorious awesomeness of God, your heart is now engaged with his beauty. And the response of a Christian who knows God truly in the heart has to be one of never-ending adoration and worship. Rejoicing in the privilege it is to be in communion, for that's what it is, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we begin to worship, we will learn to trust God and to obey His commandments. See, many of us have got it wrong. We try to trust Him and obey Him before we learn how to worship Him. But when we learn to worship Him for who He is, then we will learn to trust Him and to obey Him. We'll be joyfully dependent on Him to provide us with direction and to satisfy our longings. Now what about someone who has not entered into this relationship? See, the truth is that God is the Father of everyone because He created them. So whether you like it or not, you have a relation to God. There is a longing in the heart to return back to Him. But a relation is different from a relationship. So if you do not engage in a relationship with God, Paul says that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, which we read, that those who have rejected God have become futile in their minds, in their thinking, and foolish in their hearts. Their response is directly contradictory to the Christian. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie in the head, and therefore they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. 
they are actively engaged in disobeying God, in distrusting him and his commandments. And out of their hearts comes lust and wickedness and every type of evil doing, a pattern of behavior that rebels against God and invites his wrath. But the Christian does not live in fear of that wrath because he knows us and he calls us his own. So let our days be filled with worship and praise that flows from that relationship and leads to trust and obedience. So we know God in, we know God in our heads, we know him in our hearts. Now how do we show that with our hands? The third aspect of knowing God relates to the actions we undertake on a daily basis. So normally, here's another complex word alert. You know, this is called ethics or morality. But when I say the word ethics or morality, we will have a tendency to associate those with, you know, with knowledge or feelings. But in, but in reality, our ethics and our morals are displayed not in what we think or what we believe, but in what we do. The Bible is very clear that those who know the Lord intellectually, relationally, should behave and act in a manner that is worthy of his character. Our knowledge of him should impact what we do with our hands. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah, once again, this is how he describes a man who knows God. He is someone, this is Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 16. He is someone who rightly judges the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. So see, the unselfish practice of justice and righteousness is a direct consequence of knowing God. But when we come to the New Testament, the imperatives are even greater. Now, I don't want to take up too much more time, so I want to highlight one of the most important ones. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 to 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So what is this famous passage saying? It's saying that if we truly know God, we will aspire to be like him. And because God is love, we know that, we are to love one another. Because God loves his people, we are to love his people. Now that is the obligation that comes from knowing God, from being in a relationship with him. And we see this throughout the Bible. The call to be holy, because God is holy. The call to be pure, because God is pure. The Christian faith is irrelevant if it does not result in a Christian lifestyle. A Christian lifestyle is one that reflects the character of God in every word, thought, and deed. And make no mistake, that is a hard responsibility in a world which has decided to do everything in its power to actively oppose God and his people. But we are called to this countercultural, you know, irrelevant as the world calls it, way of living because our God demands it. He has revealed himself to us in his son. He knows us as his own because his son died for us. And today we have the privilege and the resources to know him more and more so that we can, as Paul says, 
in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See that there's, there's a direct relationship. As you increase in the knowledge of God, you will bear more and more fruit. And when you bear fruit, you will walk in a manner worthy of the God whom we know. That is the importance of knowing God. That's the importance of theology. If we know everything else, but fail to pursue the knowledge of God, we know nothing. And that knowledge is given to us in the scriptures. We need to commit to reading and studying and sharing from it so that we can know him. And when we read and study and meditate upon the word, we will be drawn to worship and adore the giver of the word. And from that worship will flow the inspiration and the dedication that it takes to live a life that is worthy of him. The head, the heart, the hands. Let nothing in us remain untouched by the knowledge of God. Let us pray. Father God, we want to thank you because you are knowable, because you have revealed yourself to us a lot, because you have revealed yourself especially in the scriptures and most of all in your son who came to this earth to become one of us, to die on our behalf a lot and to, and to live forevermore interceding for us. And we thank you for the spirit that illuminates us so that, so that we can continually know more about you a lot. We seek your forgiveness a lot when we neglect to do that, when we chase after all the other things that the world has to offer, all of the knowledge, all of the, the priorities that come in between knowing you, God. We pray a lot that, that once again we can be drawn by your awesomeness and your beauty and your majesty and seek to know you more and more so that we can walk in a manner that is worthy of you. Bless our hands a lot as we seek to do your, do your will in, in our workplaces and in our homes and in our schools. And as we head out this week, we pray a lot that our lifestyle will have an impact on the world because we know you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.